Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Snow's History. In this episode of History, we're going right the way back to Greek myths, these foundational stories that we tell ourselves to this day, thousands of years after they were first dreamed up, thousands of years after they were first written down, which attempt to explain our own universe, our own nature, our own condition to ourselves. The Greek myths have endured as a corpus of extraordinary stories, and they're brought brilliantly into focus by Natalie Haynes. She's been on the podcast before. She's as smart as she is funny, and she's goddamn hysterical. She's written a mixture of of history and historical fiction, always rooted in the ancient world. And she's now published a book about Greek myths, their genesis, and how in the retelling they've, they've evolved and transformed and in many ways departed from their original forms. If you love classical history, then you've got to go and check out history. We've got a classical history podcast on there. We have got TV shows. We've got it all going on. You just go to historyhit.tv. Use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You get a month for free and your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So you can fill your boots. You can binge like Netflix, but better on history content. All that history content's on there. Hundreds of hours of documentaries, the whole works. So go and fill your boots. In the meantime, enjoy Natalie Haynes. Natalie, good to have you back on the podcast. It's lovely to be back. Thanks for having me. The thing I've always found fascinating about myths is that they're not, they're not all written down anywhere, are they? The weird thing about the Greek no, myths is that they seem to exist and no, but nobody, apart from very clever people like you, can tell you where the platonic ideal form, original form of that myth is. There's no canonical text, is there? There just isn't. And actually, in a way, it's a sign of a, a myth's success and of a character's, a mythological character's success that there isn't. Uh, an ur text, as it were, because what it means really is that these stories were being told across Greece at the same time by multiple storytellers, which is how all these contradictory versions emerge. So we have a version of a story like, I don't know, um, the Jocasta Oedipus story, the story of the House of Thebes. And you go, oh, okay, I kind of know that. It's, you know, kid is killed. Oh, not killed, sorry, just kidding. And then goes away and then comes back, kills his dad at a crossroads, marries his mother. And, you know, and then what happens? Okay, well, that's basically it. Does he put his eyes out? Yeah, that's it. And that's kind of a sort of mashed version of the Sophocles version in Oedipus Tyrannus, the fifth century version. But he's drawing on a tradition then, which is already hundreds of years old. And in some versions, I've (laughs) been saying these words for about a thousand years, in some versions of their story, Oedipus and Jocasta, they marry illicitly and their their sin, as it's perceived, is, is discovered straight away. They don't have children. He goes on to have children with somebody else. In some versions of their story, she hangs herself when they find out in the Homeric version, which is the oldest we have from the Odyssey in book 11, she hangs herself and rushes down to Hades. She has a different name in that, by the way. She's called Epicast, not Jocasta. And so in some versions, she lives and he isn't banished. He's locked up in the palace by his sons. This is in Euripides' Phoenician women. And she becomes this sort of super powerful political diplomat trying to negotiate with warring parties. Like There is absolutely no, what's the word I want, right, proper 
version of any of these stories because they all develop across Greece at the same sort of time. And people are doing, there are sometimes we've got really close versions like, um, who, who kills Agamemnon? And the answer is for Aeschylus in his play Agamemnon, it's Clytemnestra. But if you look at a vase painting, which we can date to within about 15 years of the play, one side or the other, but infuriatingly, not which, um, it's, it's her lover, it's Aegisthus who murders Agamemnon. Does it make a difference? Well, yeah, a bit, because one version is a woman who is acquiring political power. She's behaving in this incredibly deviant, societally deviant way of wanting power for herself, of killing her husband. One version, she's basically an axe-holding cheerleader encouraging her lover to kill her husband, which is a much more kind of domestic version of that scene, much less transgressive, even though the murder is the same. And so you kind of, you look at these things and think, well, yeah, actually it is really worth delving into to hunt round in Hesiod or in Homer or to look at these you know unexpected fragments of pottery or sculpture and to try and say well you know not necessarily which is earliest and therefore which is right um, but why do all these different versions come up and then why do we prefer one version to another when does anyone ever now tell you the story of Helen Helen of Sparta, to give her her starting out name, going to Egypt rather than to Troy. You pretty much never hear it, but the two traditions are equally old. And that's why we've talked about this before on pods. I mean, you, people like Madeleine Miller as well, wrote Circe, you feel that rewriting these myths for a different age, being inspired by what's gone before, but not sticking re- religiously to them, is very much in the tradition of the ancients as well. Absolutely. The ancients are all writing is rewriting as far as they are concerned. If you're, you know, Aeschylus called his own plays slices from the banquet of Homer rather magnificently. And Homer might not even have been one person. So we have no suggestion that there's there's like a, a right version and everyone there's there are attempts to impose order. Pisistratus in the late 6th, early 5th century, I think, uh, BCE in Athens, has his editors kind of codify a proper version of the Iliad and the Odyssey because they want a sort of proper version of Homer. But really, until that point, it's hard to think of any time when when these stories have been sort of, someone has to set them down and say it's like this. These stories developed during oral culture before writing existed. So of course, they're going to change in the retelling, the act of Telling a story is the act of changing a story. And that's before you get to the Romans, people like Ovid, who was such a magpie, desperate to find these Greek myths and retell them with a Roman spin, which changes them all over again. And then, of course, they become reinterpreted through later history. So what you find is somebody like Pandora, who for the Greeks is an incredibly interesting, nuanced character without any of the kind of dubious fall of man type subtext that we've applied to her. She gets sort of merged with Eve, once the Old Testament is being commonly read and discussed. And and so her her role in Hesiod is to be a kind of chaos bringer because mankind needs that and Zeus sort of decides that she's an agent of change. But I, I don't know about you, but I grew up reading her story as, you know, bad woman does thing that makes everyone's life worse. It's like, well, that's not there in the Greek, I'm afraid. Bad woman, if only she'd done what she was told and and been grateful for her pleasant domestic life, none of this shit would have happened. I mean, if they'd only sculpted her out of clay <laughs> with a different mindset, it would all have been fine. In this latest brilliant book you've written, you're attempting to write the women back into these myths. Are you doing so in a way that is quite historiographical? Because, of course, you are both a historian and a phenomenal um, writer of historical fiction as well. So this is more this is more historical. This is my non-fiction book. Yeah, exactly. I hope that people who read A Thousand Ships or Children of Jocasta will like having a sort of 
compendium volume to go with it, I suppose. That's the plan, vaguely. These stories do need exploring because, you know, you just, most people aren't going to read The Theogony and The Works and Days and then compare the versions of Pandora that Hesiod describes in each one of those things. And it is interesting. Most people don't know that Pandora doesn't have a box until Erasmus mistranslates her. She has a jar in the ancient world and it is different. It just is, isn't it? A jar is something which is really easily knocked over or broken. A box requires real malice to open it. And so when we take the phrase Pandora's box and, and then, you know, make that, she's, she's got to really deliberately do bad things. We all overlook, of course, the fact that the first time Hesiod tells her story, she doesn't have any kind of receptacle at all. We overlook the fact that in every single visual representation of her from the ancient world, she doesn't have any receptacle at all. She's always shown in the act of being created. We just let the fact that Erasmus translated her in a slightly wonky way, the Greek word is pithos, he translates it to pixis, jar, to box. It, it just becomes her story. And yet, why should it be? It's only been her story for a few hundred years. And there was a whole story for 2000 years before that, that we sort of forgot. And often they've been distorted, you know, for really kind of understandable, almost blameless reasons. You know, there's a reason why Nathaniel Hawthorne or Roger Lancelin Green simplifies these stories for children. And I'm not particularly advocating that the stories should be really complicated for children. It's just because those editions were produced and you know written, put together in the mid 19th century in the case of Hawthorne, mid 20th century in the case of Green, you know, they, they reflect the biases of their times. And so you kind of think, well, it, it probably is, isn't it? A bit, a bit. I mean, there's certainly scope, I think, for somebody to rewrite the Puffin Book of Greek Myths or whatever it should be, Osborne Book of Greek Myths for, for children trying to, to reflect the world we live in now and the way we read classics now, rather than the way we read classics in the 1950s or 1850s. But in the meantime, I hope children who read that as children can now read this and go, oh, hang on a minute, because <laughs> they should. What other women, I mean, obviously Pandora is, is a you know, hugely important figure in myth. I mean, what about some of these other figures? I mean, you've talked about Clytemnestra. Who else are you pleased with the things that you've been able to add or redress? Well, Penelope, because obviously she's always presented to us as this sort of ideal wife. And it's pretty much 100% by men who don't know her who talk about her in those terms. So Penelope is the long-suffering wife of Odysseus. He spends 10 years away doing the Trojan War, 10 years coming back, having a great adventure. We always see the Odyssey as a great adventure narrative. So I always think it's worth pointing out at this moment that of the 10 years he spends adventuring to get home, one year of them is spent shacked up with a woman named Circe. Seven years of them are spent shacked up with a woman named Calypso. So in fact, it's just the two years of adventuring and the other eight years are, let's say, bedroom adventuring, uh, which is a bit less heroic. I mean, I'm sure he's tremendous in the sack, don't get me wrong. But and, and then Penelope is presented as this glorious sort of long suffering woman who maintains his home and doesn't remarry um, in spite of constant pressure to do so. And that's her, her part of the story in the Odyssey. But there are versions of her story where she in fact doesn't do that, where she has a fling with one of the suitors called Amphinimus, I think. There's a version where she has an affair with the god, in fact, and produces the god Pan as a, as a result. So I really enjoyed reclaiming her. Medusa was a story that I felt I should know more about. And in fact, she will now be my next novel, having written a chapter on her in Pandora's Jar. Because again, I had grown up watching the, the Ray Harryhausen Clash of the Titans. I thought that was basically all I needed to know about Medusa, monster. But she isn't a monster. She's a woman who is cursed after being raped as punishment for being raped. And so it's like, okay, I didn't know enough about this story and I should know more. So yeah, reclaiming her was, and obviously warrior women I love to take on. So the Amazons were fun. With Medusa, where did you reclaim her from? There is an incredible history of Gorgonea. So a Gorgon is what Medusa is. There are three, Medusa, 
Stheno and Uriali. Almost always, not entirely always, but often in Greek myth, female deities are tripled. So you get um, three graces, the three Graii, the Grey sisters who share an eye and a tooth, which you may remember from assorted films of your childhood, and uh, three seasons, I think, because the Greeks don't have four, three hours. That, so you often get these this tripling of, of goddesses, and the Gorgons are no different. And what we see across the Greek world, before Gorgons exist as full-bodied creatures, are Gorgonea. A Gorgoneon is the head of uh, a Gorgon. And the Greeks used to put them on shields. Uh, Agamemnon has a Gorgon head on his shield in the Iliad, for example. Um, Athene has one on her breastplate. Um, You see them on the front of temples often. So they serve a role which is apotropaic. They're protective. We use them to avert evil spirits. And there's been a lot of debate about what kind of evil they're supposed to avert. It seems that the Gorgons are often shown in these earlier forms with very big distended mouths and tusks. And so is it noise that they're being associated with? Do they protect us from thunder and lightning? You've been to Greece, you know how real the weather feels there. Is it wild animals? I think that seems more likely. The snakes for hair, the fact that when you you make them circular with the snakes for hair, it actually also looks like a lion's mane. The tusks, boars can certainly kill a person. And so they protect us from wild animals, perhaps, or they make us feel a little safer. We, we create our fears or observe our fears and we make an object which makes us feel more secure, a talisman, if you like. And then, of course, the Greeks, born storytellers, must think, well, there's all these heads everywhere and perhaps Humbaba is an inspiration as well, the, the headless nature anyway. Um, so they may be purloining it from Mesopotamia. Perhaps it's their own sort of folk creation. But the Greeks can't resist a story. And so they see all these heads and they think, well, they must belong to bodies. What does, what does a Gorgon look like? And then, of course, what they end up with is a whole set of, of creatures, Gorgons, and yet there's so many decapitated heads around. And then the story of Perseus arrives to explain how you separate a Gorgon from her head. And it's like, okay, so, the, so Perseus is added to the Medusa story and not the other way around. She's not a monster for him to kill. He's a hero to decapitate her and, and separate body from head, which I think is already quite a, a strange way round for a story to be told. And her story is told really, really well in Ovid, for example, in the Metamorphoses, where we get stacks of detail, but there are a lot of earlier versions of her. She gets a name check in Hesiod, for example. So she dates back a really long way, but her story has been distorted again through time. So he needs a lot of, Perseus needs a great deal of assistance, divine assistance to take on Medusa. Um, He's helped by Athene and by Hermes. They take him to the nymphs who've got a special backpack. Kibesis is the Greek for backpack, in case you were wondering, which you can use to kind of carry Medusa's head. And he gets special winged sandals. He gets a special cap of invisibility. So he needs loads of furnishings before he can take her on. But in the end, he decapitates her when she's asleep. And I kept thinking about those memes that were up when the 2016 American election was happening. Do you remember? Um, and they, they used the image of the Cellini or sometimes the Canova. Perseus Triumphant is what that Canova sculpture is called, the one that uh, there's a copy of in the Met in New York. And it's Perseus holding up Medusa's head. And it's like, well, he's only triumphant if you think you're the guy. If you think you're the woman, <laughs> it doesn't look very triumphant. Looks a bit decapitated to me, thanks for asking. And then, of course, there was that incredible moment when this meme just raced across the internet when Christine Blasey Ford was giving her evidence to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And there was a gender swap of that image. Do you remember this? And it was a, a white marble, seemingly marble, I think it's a adopted image, personally, Medusa. And she's holding up the head of Perseus 
And some people put text on the image which said, be thankful we just want equality and not payback. And it was such a shocking image. You're like, oh my God, she's decapitated a man. And you go, I've seen this image a thousand times and never felt that sense of shock. Why? What What does that say about the society I, I live in? That I don't find her decapitated body shocking. I find his shocking. That's not okay. And so it was that thing where you go, I'm not just trying to find this story in Greek myth, although I am. I'm not just trying to dig this story out of... Uh, Latin poetry, although I am. I'm not just trying to dig this story out of much more modern art, although I am. I'm trying to dig it out of my own prejudices from just existing now. It's like, God, I really have to stop and think sometimes. Jeez, come on, sort it out. Well, that's wonderful thing about this podcast and being challenged and educated by people, wonderful people like you. Just let's finish up on warrior women because they are all the rage at the moment. Yes, not, they are. Not unrelated to what we just talked about. Tell me about the Amazons. I love Amazons and um, I wrote uh, Penthesilea's story into A Thousand Ships because I had loved her for years. That vase, which of course they had at the British Museum Troy exhibition, the Exequias vase, which everyone saw, I think, there, um, where Achilles and Penthesilea are in the final moments of their their battle at Troy. It's so heartbreaking. Amazons always, always fight together. There's a fantastic moment in Pausanias, who is your sort of spiritual guide, I would hope, uh, when he's going around Greece and he sees a, a sculpture, I think, rather than a painting, of an Amazonomachy, a battle between the Greeks and the Amazons. And he's, I love him so much. It's, this is why he's a genius. He doesn't just say, oh, there are lots of Amazons and lots of Greeks. He counts them and and he works out there are exactly 29 Greeks fighting 29 Amazons. And that's, you know, the detail that we come to him for. And I love the way that um, Amazons are, it's a it's a fair fight. They are called anti-anerai by Homer, um, equal to men. Um, so they are, It's very, we're very much in this sort of area of Wonder Woman, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where women can fight on equal terms with men. And that begins, as far as I can tell, with Amazons. And one of the reasons I think Amazons needed reclaiming was actually another linguistic shift. And it drives me completely mad because Hercules slash Heracles, to give him his Greek name, goes to reclaim as one of his labours, the war belt of Hippolyta. And I grew up at least until I was probably 20, I would say, only ever hearing that story described as him going to collect the girdle of Hippolyta. And girdle is a heavily gendered word, for the most part in our time, meaning a woman's garment, a woman's belt. And even if you go back to something like Midsummer Night's Dream, where Puck is going to put a girdle around the earth, it's an ungendered sort of plain belt. But the word in Greek for Hippolyta's war belt, zerstare, is a war belt. It's a war belt, exactly the same word is used for the war belts worn by men, heroes, in the Iliad. So she's got a proper fighter's belt. And that is what Hercules wants to take for, well, a woman he's trying to impress, as usual, with Hercules. And it just really annoyed me. when I, I was like, well, the Greek word for a woman's belt is zone. That's like a nice, neat belt that ladies would wear. And all these translations of this story had basically it seemed to me, robbed her of her martial prowess. She's got a war belt, goddammit. She's got a battle axe in it. The Amazons invented the battle axe, the double-headed battle axe. Securus is the word in Latin. Pliny the Elder tells us that. So how can we stop talking about them in those terms? It just it just drives me mad. You know it does. So it kind of the impetus to go, oh, it's right here, was, was ever-present in this book. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It was my pleasure. It always is. And um, tell everyone the name of the book. The name of the book is Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myth. Congratulations. Thank you, Natalie.
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.